Hi, everybody. It's Lonnie. Um, I am here to introduce a segment that Kelly and I recorded with Lolly DeRozier, a biologist who is uh, interested in the Buffyverse and talks a lot about the scientific aspects of the Buffyverse. A lot of things that we have questions about on Still Dead, but neither one of us really has the expertise to talk about intelligently, but Lolly does. You can find her as at Adverbia on Twitter. She is brilliant. Absolutely give her a follow. We intended for this to be part of an episode, just a quick segment, but we were so fascinated by her and kept asking her questions and she kept answering them in these really interesting ways. So here during Chipperish Staff Development Week, in which there is no regular episode of Still Dead, we thought we would throw this at you as a special segment, but because it was intended to be part of a show, um, I don't introduce myself. Kelly doesn't introduce herself, but we're both here talking with the brilliant Lolly DeRozier, and you don't even have to ask. We are going to have her back. We didn't even touch on everything that we wanted to talk about. There's so much great stuff, and uh, we're definitely going to do this again with her. So enjoy. All right, we've got Lolly DeRozier with us today to talk about vampire biology. Lolly, also known as Adverbia on Twitter, is a biology teacher and education advocate and promotes youth involvement in science through student writing, sci art, and science outreach. With the Curly Hair Mafia, she tackles themes of science and diversity in sci fi, fantasy, and horror in film, TV, and gaming. You can find her podcasts and videos at curlyhairmafia.com. Welcome, Lolly. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so I'm so glad you reached out because we have all of these questions and now we have a scientist who can actually answer them for us. But first of all, um, tell us a bit about your background, uh, both in science and with the Buffyverse. I mean, I, I presume you're a fan of the Buffyverse since you found us, right? <laughs> Yes. So I, I was a fan of Buffy when it first aired mm -hmm. and uh, subsequently a fan of Angel as well. And uh, my background is in biology. I have a degree in biology and then I went into teaching. Mm -hmm. And like most nerds, I like to dissect things and discuss them ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. And so I like to apply what I learned academically to, you know, my outside interests. Uh, I've started uh, about five years ago, I started going to Dragon Con as a panelist. They have a science track mm -hmm. and we talk about a lot of these things. We talk about chemical warfare and Wonder Woman. We talk about the science of Luke Cage. We talk about how nature is kinkier than you. So <laughs> wait, wait, how do I get a ticket for that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, they actually just released the panels for Dragon Con for this year. So I'm really excited about the things that we have coming up. But um, it's given me a lot of experience in taking this academic research and applying it to these fantasy and science fiction worlds. Oh, wow. That's I really that. cool. Currently, I'm a K-12 biology teacher. Mm -hmm. And for the past 20 years, I've been teaching, among other things, reproductive biology to high schoolers. Mm -hmm. So when I was listening to the podcast about she, I was really thinking about how the themes of that show are, uh, of that particular episode are all about how sex is bad. Right. And, and all of the negative things that will come out of having sex or engaging with sex or having sexual feelings. And I really feel like it reflects what was going on in sex education at the time, mm -hmm. all throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, where uh, even though we were teaching kids about uh, reproductive systems and contraception, the message also was just don't do it because you'll die. Right. Right. 
And so I think that's really reflected in what was going on in the programming, because that's really the target audience, you know, the WB, mm-hmm. late teens, uh, early 20s, uh, that audience of, of people who are beginning to be sexually awakened and experimenting sexually. And, uh, you know, that was it was pretty horrifying mm-hmm. to be a teenager at the time in the 90s and the 2000s and thinking that, you know, this natural thing that your body was being drawn to was ultimately going to be your demise. Wow. Yeah, that is really horrifying. And that adds a whole other like layer to that discussion of she. So um, I definitely will look at that every time I watch that episode from now on. (laughs) All right. So we are dying to get to our questions with you. And my first question is, you know, we're talking about vampire biology. Obviously, vampires are a, a fictional, you know, construct. But are there existing organisms that have vampire qualities? Like, I mean, mosquitoes live on blood, right? So, yes, that's true. There are certainly lots of blood parasites. Mm-hmm. There's mosquitoes, there's leeches, there's bloodworms, there's lamprey, mm-hmm. um, which will feed not only on blood, but basically on any body liquid that they can get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Um but we, you know, the question is really, what does feeding mean yeah. when you're talking about a corpse? You know, when you're talking about uh, a body that doesn't follow the rules of energetics, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't have a metabolism per se, um, that that's really where the question of vampires becomes really, really tricky. So there are definitely organisms that exist only on blood, mm-hmm. uh, but they treat blood as food, just like any other organism does. All right. So vampires don't, th- so they don't need it for energy. It's not like a food replacement because they're a corpse, right? Correct. So food powers metabolism, mm-hmm. right? There's stored energy in food. Mm-hmm. And when you digest food, you break apart the bonds of that food, the carbohydrates, the starches, the lipids, the proteins, and you convert it into energy that your body can use. And mm-hmm. that process is what generates body heat. Okay. Oh. So as you are consuming the stored energy in the food and using it, your body uses some of it for what it needs. And then about 90% of it actually is lost as heat to the environment. So a vampire is an entity, which we can talk about more in a bit, that inhabits a human corpse. Uh And the dead body is animated by the vampire's magic. It's no longer being animated by the energy from metabolism, Mm -hmm. which is what a living body is animated by. So, you know, magic here in quotes could mean a metabolic process that we can't measure. You know, the idea that any technology that's sufficiently advanced would seem like magic. Yes, Arthur C. Clarke, sure. (laughs) So... So here you have, uh, you know, we're calling it magic, but it could be, you know, Buffy has, the Buffyverse has a really interesting intersection between, you know, what is uh, like arcane and what is science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the things that a vampire does that seem metabolic are powered by this demonic source. It's not powered by food. Mm-hmm. You know, the heart doesn't beat, but blood flows, Right. Well, you know, yeah, we're going to get to that later when we ask you about sex. (laughs) Yeah. So blood flows not only during sex, but also when like like when a vampire opens a vein to make another vampire. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no breathing, but muscle action does allow speech. So the vampire lungs essentially become like bellows, Uh you know, to power the vocal cords. Um, They can move blood for sex. It's logical, like, you know, that like. 
a freshly fed vampire seems more animated. You know, they talk about like when a vampire hasn't fed, they become weaker. Yeah. But they can't actually expire from lack of blood. So there's something in the blood that is giving strength to the demonic presence of the vampire in the corpse. Mm -hmm. So in that way, the vampire is acting like a really precise symbiont. You know, there are, for example, the plasmodium that causes malaria uh, lives in human blood, mm -hmm. right? And it's carried by mosquitoes in the form of human blood from one organism to the next. So the vampire um, gains some kind of energy or some kind of strength from blood, but it, but it really can't be considered food because it's not digesting the blood, mm -hmm. right? It's not uh, consuming the blood. The blood... The quantity of blood isn't decreasing in the vampire through consumption in that way. Um, vampires, we see them eat and drink, mm -hmm. uh, but they don't appear to taste, right? In the episode right. where Angel um, becomes human again, uh, um, I will remember you. You know, he goes into the fridge and he's like, oh, my God, all this food, it tastes so amazing. So when when he's a truly a vampire, he's not tasting anything, even though we mm -hmm. do see them eat sometimes. But they can feel the effects of um, drugs and alcohol that go into the bloodstream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they can become drunk. We see that Spike is kind of a binge drinker. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so, so in that regard, uh, there are some things that are inconsistent in the Buffy verse. Their hair should not grow. Their nails should not grow because mm -hmm. those are metabolic processes that result from cell division. Okay. Uh, and cells only divide when they're alive. Uh -huh. So yeah, if they get a haircut, that should be it. You know, they're stuck with that haircut <laughs> forever. Oh, so Spike doesn't have to keep peroxiding his hair. No, no, it should be one and done. <laughs> one and done. God, could you imagine, though, the implications of becoming a vampire, like, during a truly tragic fashion era, yes. and then being stuck like that for the <laughs> rest of your eternity? <laughs> well, they're always wigs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but at that point, you know, they should all just shave their heads and then they can wear whatever weight they want. Sure. Oh, yeah, good point. Good point. And I was thinking about what you said about food. Um, I think it's in Pang's Buffy episode where we see Spike like crumbling up crackers and adding them to or Weetabix or something and adding them to the blood. And he says it gives it texture. But you're right. He doesn't say anything about taste. So I think that that's really interesting. Yep. So as a biologist, I want to note, you know, when we're trying to make the Buffyverse consistent, you have to like approach it in a very particular way. Uh, yeah. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty clear to me that they didn't have a biologist on staff in the writer's room. <laughs> mm -hmm. So as a biologist, I have to rely on what I can observe directly. So what I right. observe vampires doing directly on the screen takes precedent over everything else. A vampire's testimony about vampires has like the next level of priority. Mm -hmm. And then a human's knowledge about vampires is the lowest rung on the ladder because humans have their own bias. Humans mm -hmm. uh, are interpreting things essentially about an, a whole nother species and culture simultaneously. Um, and a lot of like what the, the, Scooby gang and what, you know, Angel and his friends know about, not Angel, but what his friends know about vampires comes from ancient texts where there was less technology, where there wasn't mm -hmm. a rigorous scientific investigation. It's all like lore and mythology and fear. So, you know, you really have to take those with a grain of salt because even on the show, 
they say things and then later they're wrong. Yeah, no, it does. It, the, there's a lot of inconsistency. And like, you know, from my perspective as a writer, I look at that and I say, well, no, if you state it, then that's part of the actual text that we're reading from. But it's really interesting, this idea of the scientific process of what is reliable data and what is not. Yeah, yeah. and the priority of observation there, I think, is a great framework to use for this particular show because we have so many different writers and we do have so many different levels of consistency. So having kind of a scientific method for prioritizing the observations that we see is fantastic. Um, so that makes me incredibly happy because you came to talk to us and you brought a framework and that's, <laughs> that's <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> and, and if we can talk about the framework of vampires for a second, you know, mm -hmm. the, the original story, we're dealing with Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? Right. And then, yes, there's lots of different stories about vampires, but the two main ones in popular culture, there's like now branching off from Bram Stoker's, there's like the Buffyverse type mm -hmm. of vampire or the Anne Rice type of vampire. Mm -hmm. And this show is really interesting because vampires in Buffy and Angel are styled in the Bram Stoker way, but they behave in the Anne Rice way, which is a little more scientific. Oh, interesting. So, you know, in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, they're saddled with all this religious iconography mm -hmm. and symbolism uh, and the Victorian theme of self-loathing and body horror. Mm -hmm. And in Anne Rice, there's a specific biological reason for why vampires exist and how vampires intersect with the other magical and mythological creatures in the Anne Rice universe. Mm -hmm. And... They, they don't have any religious vulnerability. Lestat doesn't respond to, you know, he's not harmed by crosses. He's not harmed by holy mm -hmm. water. Um, I don't know if you want me to say any spoilers for what eventually happens in Anne Rice, but it's truly horrifying. <laughs> oh, I think it's okay. The only thing we're not spoiling is Angel. <laughs> yeah. So, so I recently read, uh, much to my dismay, the uh, Lestat in Atlantis book uh -huh. that Anne Rice came out with. And it turns out that vampires are aliens that are inhabited from an initial source, which vampires always have an initial source called Amel. Mm -hmm. And they have like a nanoparticle, which is why they all become infected, but are all still linked with each other. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's bananas. And these aliens yeah. are vampires in the sense that they initially started by feeding on human emotion and then through a series of events actually became embedded in human bodies. And so they feed on blood. Wow. wow. Yeah. It's, that's a long way from interview with a vampire. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But I, as a, you talked about, you know, like high school and stories in the late nineties and early two thousands. Um, and I think one of the reasons that I turned to Anne Rice so hard when I was that age was that was sort of the only venue for the kinds of stories that she was telling. Yes. That were so different, you know, than a lot of the body shaming, sex shaming stories that I had access to. And I remember being really intrigued by the stories that she built for that reason. But I haven't reread her in years and years and years. And now, clearly, I must... <laughs> well, you know, the initial Lestat and Interview with a Vampire and even uh, Queen of the Damned really do hold up. Um, 
but this latest installment about Lestat in Atlantis is uh, is different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds it sounds a little weird. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like trying to take this fantasy world and move it into this like scientific explanation. Yes. That doesn't seem to really make sense. Yes. <laughs> All right. So back to Angel um, and to the Buffyverse vampires. Um, so in Angel, we see vampires as stronger and faster than humans. They've got more stamina and innate fighting ability and better hearing and vision. Are there biological reasons that this would make sense to you? So all of that really has to come down to the demonic presence inside the corpse. Because once mm -hmm. you have established that metabolic energy is not in play, then yes. the only source of that energy would come from the demonic presence that's animating the body. Now, there mm -hmm. are some organisms, you know, we talk about the nature of this possession of the body. Yes. You know, some people have referred to it as a virus or an infection or an essence or an aura. There are actually microscopic organisms that exist as individual cells, but can when they come together, communicate with one another. Um, mm -hmm. So there are some bacteria do this through DNA. Every time they touch each other, they trade these little pellets of, of DNA called plasmids, uh, which is mm -hmm. how bacteria can mutate so rapidly and how they, they become so diverse, even though they're asexually reproducing and essentially cloning themselves. There are some species of eukaryotes, uh, some archaea and some really odd types of slime molds that exist as single cells, but they do form colonies that have these cytoplasmic connections to one another through which they communicate. So when you think about like the lineage of a vampire, you have this, you know, this primordial vampire, this initial, whether it was a true vampire or a demon that infected the first human, well then if it if this demonic presence lives in the blood, and you know, I, I really think it is focused in the blood because that's the vampire obsession is with blood. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. that then as the blood is transferred from sire to fledgling, then that demonic presence is transferred as well, whether it's uh, like, you know, an arcane or mystical kind of essence or whether it's truly a particulate organism. I looked and I'm trying to find anywhere in the Buffyverse that they actually visually examine vampire blood and I couldn't find anything. Yeah, I don't remember anything like that. No, I don't either. Except... Mm, it would be a spoiler for Angel, but I think there is there is something about blood later but i don't know that we see it in terms of like them showing you know difference in dna or cell structure or anything like that yeah but it does come up later in the show um which is kind of interesting yeah so microscopes but are relatively new right they're relatively new in in biology and they really revolutionized our understanding of biology uh, you know, we're talking the last 200 years or so. Uh, mm -hmm. Microscopes existed before that, but not in any way that was useful for examining cells. Mm -hmm. But any uh, any modern microscope that you would have in a high school classroom would be sufficient for being able to detect a microorganism in a blood sample. Wow. Oh, wow. And so it's really odd to me that that isn't obvious in the show. Mm -hmm. That yeah. they never thought to take a sample of Angel's blood and just look at it. Wow. Oh, gosh, this is fascinating. So we, you know, you're giving me a whole new way to think about 
the purpose and function of blood. And one of the things that we see on Angel is the differentiation between drinking human blood and drinking animal blood. And some episodes tend to lean toward the idea that drinking human blood, even if it's from a blood bank, would cause like more blood lust in a vampire. Um, almost like the animal blood is a more ethical choice or something. Do you think that there is a biological or, you know, scientific or even mystical reason that makes sense to you about why that would be the case and would animal blood be less nourishing for a vampire than human blood? Yes. And I think this really reinforces the idea of a vampire as a parasitic symbiont because symbiosis means when two organisms live together and there are three basic symbiotic relationships. There's, um, Mutualism, where both benefit. There's commensalism, where one benefits and the other is essentially unaffected. And there's parasitism, where one benefits and the other one is harmed. So in most cases of symbiotic relationships, the relationship between the two symbiotic organisms is so close that it cannot easily be transferred to another organism without having some pretty serious consequences. Um, so if one organism in the relationship becomes extinct, there's a pretty good chance that the other organism is also going to become extinct because of the dependency, regardless of what kind of symbiotic relationship it is. So vampires crave blood generally, and they crave human blood specifically. And because we're kind of operating under the assumption that it's not really blood as food, then it seems like human blood is the most beneficial thing for the environment of this vampire presence to exist in. You know, you, you like, I would be really curious to know whether, for example, if a vampire gave, if a vampire donated blood, like let's say you take out a pint of blood and then you transfuse it into a person, would that be enough to cause a vampiric change? Huh. If you mix yeah, a pint of know. vampire blood with like otter blood, and then transfuse it <laughs> into an otter. Would that be enough to cause <laughs> a vampire otter? otter. Like, <laughs> Total side note, now I want a vampire otter as my very own. Well, I always remember, <laughs> minor spoilers, but I always remember Harmony saying, it's got a touch of otter. <laughs> <laughs> like a vampire sommelier yes. being able to pick out the, the elements of it. <laughs> So, so you know there there are there are microparasites that are that are not only are they host specific but they also alter the behavior of their host, which is truly horrifying when you think about mm -hmm. it. Like for example, um, Toxoplasma gondii, which is the parasite that's responsible for toxoplasmosis, which is commonly known as cat scratch fever. Mm -hmm. uh, so when a person is infected with toxoplasmosis. Unless they're immunocompromised, they really don't have very many symptoms. They might get a fever for a little while. Unless you're pregnant, it's not really a threat. Um, but while the infection is active, you are more likely to cuddle your cat. Yeah, I've oh, heard about which that. Which is where the infection came from in the first place. Mice that are infected with the toxoplasma lose their fear of cats. Oh, my oh God. Oh, my gosh. And they, uh, they become more active during the day. They are more likely to come out into open spaces. <laughs> well, cats are truly evil. They're the sociopaths. 
of the animal world. So, I mean, I have three of them. I love them, but they're they're evil. So, but I think here the microorganism is the sociopath because it's <laughs> propelling these mice to their death. Yeah, but the cats are killing. Like I have cat. They bring in a mouse just to torment it. So I want like they don't. She doesn't kill it. She just torments it until it dies of fear. I want to put a pin in that because I want to talk yeah. about the nature of biology as evil in a minute, and it has to okay. be directly okay. with food. So to answer your question, I think that you know vampires they drink blood because they have to replenish a live mm-hmm. blood supply, and this is really important. Red blood cells do not divide. Red blood cells don't split. Every other cell in your body that has to replenish itself divides, but red blood cells come from bone marrow. So Mm -hmm. if there's a quantity of blood in a body, when those red blood cells are done, they just die and they don't get replaced by the red blood cells. So the red blood cells that are cruising around inside a vampire have a limited lifespan, which could account for the craving that vampires have for human blood. Mm-hmm. And if human blood is oh. the best environment for that, that would be what they naturally crave. Um, other mammalian blood could be a substitute. Maybe vampires who are only drinking from rats or whatever are weaker Um Maybe, uh, you know, I don't think that we have any examples of vampires drinking from birds or from reptiles, mm-hmm. even though no, I think you're right. they are big enough, you know, they have a large yeah. enough blood supply that it could sustain a vampire. It seems to always be mammalian blood. So there clearly is like a biological standard for, for what they can tolerate, human being the best, but mammal being acceptable. Oh, I love this. So, so the much. blood hunger is really the only metabolic urge that we see. When vampires have drunk fresh blood, they're more lifelike. It stands to reason mm-hmm. that they would be warmer. Remember, um, there's a, a point down the line where there's a shock that causes a heartbeat that causes an instant carnal urge, like mm-hmm. an electrical shock. Yes. Right? Oh, yes. That causes an yes. instant carnal urge. Um so, you know, the vampire, they, they seem to have a need to constantly replace this blood source. And I would say that it has to do with the symbiotic relationship of the demon entity to the human body. I love this explanation. So my question <laughs> always is, how come Wolfram and Hart never employed anybody with hemochromatosis? What is hemochromatosis? Hemochromatosis <laughs> is a genetic condition where you have too much iron in your blood. And mm-hmm. the simple treatment for hematomacrosis is to donate blood. Wow. So huh. like it, it, when, you know, in the, I hate to use the term, but that, you know, they call them blood sluts or whatever. Vampires have these blood sluts where they have these human people mm-hmm. who are just like fetishized vampires or whatever. Like it always has amazed me that nobody has simply employed people with hemochromatosis, you know, here you would have this perfect symbiotic relationship. You have a human that needs to constantly donate blood in order to not die. You have a vampire Mm -hmm. that needs to drink human blood in order to survive. So there you go. It's a match made in heaven. Why don't they just have harems of people with hemochromatosis? Okay, please, please tell me that you are writing this into some kind of fictional work (laughs) that I can read. That would be wow. some interesting fan fiction, like you know the. No, not fan fiction. I want this. I want this as the, as the novel from you because this is fascinating. 
Yeah, it's so funny because um, I have severe anemia, like to the point where I have to have iron infusions and all kind of crazy mess. So I'm seeing this from the exact opposite, thinking about red blood cells and like what it would be like to have too many instead of too little. And maybe this is in support of me becoming a vampire, which is kind of one of my goals. But I just (laughs) love all of this explanation so much. So much. This is fantastic. So one of the things that I'm wondering is how the vampire blood or that vampire, you know, virus or bacteria or nanotech or whatever it is in the transmission of that from vampire to person. So in order to be turned, we've seen it where the victim has to drink vampire blood, right? But we've also seen that where there are cases of accidental turning, which seems to happen a lot more on Buffy than Angel, where the body of someone bitten by a vampire is burned or decapitated to prevent that body from turning into a vampire. But it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case that the vampire who killed the person intended to sire a vampire. So do you have any thoughts on how that works? Um, and if you can make a vampire on accident just by biting somebody? So I'm trying to remember if any of those cases were like, because this is kind of where we run into Bram Stoker territory, where if a person is bitten a certain number of times, then if they die, they will turn. Uh, but I'm trying to remember if in the Buffyverse, if any of the people whose bodies were burned, if they actually drank vampire blood like i'm wondering if that was if that was like human human superstition just a bit of preventative medicine or if there if there were actually any cases where that was a danger of happening or where it did happen because it would be i think it would be reasonable for a vampire to sire someone let them be buried knowing that they would just dig themselves up right Mm -hmm. Uh, but i'm wondering if any of the cases they were actually worried about were legitimate concerns Right. Because, like, we see some, and I'm thinking specifically of Harmony. Yes. You know, we see her bitten. We don't see her sired. And some of, and I guess maybe some of the early episodes in Buffy where you have people at the funeral parlor, you know, rising from coffins. Like, they weren't buried. There wasn't any ritual there. But they're going to come back as a vampire because that's how they died. So I've always wondered, like, does that have to be done with intention? Does the vampire who killed them just get accidentally carried away? Does it really require the reverse transmission of blood? Everything that I've seen uh, when we have cases where they're deliberately showing somebody being turned, um, it seems to be that the person has to drink the blood, that the vampire opens their vein Uh, typically in the wrist or the neck, and the person has to drink a large quantity of the vampire's blood. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that 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 might be uh, just uh, maybe the writers not paying attention (laughs) because there doesn't (laughs) seem to be anything in the textually that would support that. Uh, You know, I guess we could get into a conversation of maybe vampires not practicing safe biting (laughs) no actually i think that's a really good metaphor for it i do yeah i think that there's something in the in the metaphor that in order to be turned you have to kind of you have to drink their blood 
So you have to be willing. But if you've had all of your blood drained or most of it anyway, you know, and then and then there's this, you know, you're feeling that loss of blood and then somebody gives you blood, you know, is that a willing thing? Is that something that you you do or is it just like a biological impulse to replace the blood that you've lost? Yeah, I think there's probably a survival element there, you know, like the desperation Mm -hmm. of of a person just trying to not die. No, that's interesting. But that brings us to, I think, the question we've all had. <laughs> How in the world does sex work? What is Because like, okay, we have no beating heart, but the blood is flowing. And so is it like, is it a magical thing? Because I mean, we all know, I mean, you know, pretty much at this point, like how penises work, right? This is a hydraulic process, right? right? <laughs> so like, how does that, how does the whole sex thing work? With well, and types? to be, you know, to be fair, penises and vulvas, you know, because there's engorgement. Yeah, sure, both, fair enough. Yeah, right? That was, that was my follow up question was, yes. <laughs> and, and how do female vampires experience orgasm exactly? Because those two questions go together. So the, so uh, whatever is animating the vampire body, whatever causing the major muscle groups to move the eyes to blink the the lungs to inflate for speech like all of those whatever is powering all of that could certainly power Mm -hmm. the genitals for sex that is a relatively minor Mm -hmm. thing it's a question of directing blood flow from one area to another i think the bigger question is where does the desire for it come from because uh-huh. um, you know the vampires they don't desire food other than blood they don't you know they they uh they can feel the effects of drugs and alcohol but it's not you know they're not just sipping whiskey for the flavor of it right so what is it that causes mm-hmm. them to desire sex in angel's case you can probably make the case that it's an emotional desire for sex because he has a soul right and there's an emotional Mm -hmm. connection to the people that he is attracted to um in the case of she there's like you know she put the mystical whammy on him and right right (laughs) uh but uh and i think there's probably a connection between how recently they've had uh blood you know, maybe a fresh mm-hmm. infusion of blood can cause things that feel like real feelings and and physical sensations. Um, men can have orgasm without ejaculation. That's not unusual. Mm-hmm. So having a physical orgasm probably doesn't require any actual fluid to be spilled. So mm-hmm. that's really not a concern. Um a vampire would necessarily be sterile because sperm and eggs are both alive cells and they don't have any of those apart from what they drink. Mm -hmm. So they would have to be sterile um, if we're, you know, if we're sticking to the biology of it. So, you know, whatever it is that has them walking and talking also has them. (laughs) It's the same thing. Well, all right. I think that that's fantastic. Lolly, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us about all of these biological processes. It's definitely going to open up a lot of the discussion that we're going to be having in the future on Still Dead. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. 